2: Hello, and you are very welcome to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. I am political correspondent Gavin Riley. joined in the studio by news correspondent Zara King. Zara hello, hello, how are you? And also by news correspondent Richard Chambers. How, you how are you? Uh, we are also joined uh, for part one of this week's podcast by our courts correspondent, Deborah Taylor. Deborah, delighted to have you here. Uh, you have obviously been very busy for the last couple of weeks covering the murder trial of Joseph uh, Pushka, who is accused of the murder of Ashley Murphy. Um, there were no hearings in court today, Wednesday, the day we're recording this, which gives us a chance really to catch our breaths really and just debrief on how we've gotten so far. Mm -hmm. Um, What stage are we at in the trial? Are are we ebbing closer to the prosecution wrapping up its case, do you think?
1: We are indeed. I think yesterday marked uh, day 10 of evidence in this trial. Josef Pushgals, of course, pleaded uh, not guilty to the murder um, of Ashley Murphy, who was uh, fatally assaulted along a stretch of the Grand Canal at Kapancurr. Um, just outside Tullamore in County Offaly on uh, January 12th last year. Uh, We know at this point that the prosecution case is almost complete. There are just two prosecution witnesses left to give evidence. Now, the jury has not been told um, who they are, but once they are done, uh, the prosecution will rest its case. Now, yesterday, uh, the trial judge, Mr Justice Tony Hunt, said that he couldn't give the jury any clues beyond that, but he did say that there was some legal business to be tied up in their absence, which is, is normal in any trial. Uh, The final prosecution witnesses were, in fact, due to give evidence today. But uh, we hit a little rope rock and uh, the jury was sent home early.
3: So yesterday we heard from a medical expert. What did he have to say in relation to medication given to Mr. Mr Pushka in hospital?
1: Yeah, so yesterday we heard from a professor, uh, Michael Ryan. Now, he's been described uh, to the jury as an internationally renowned expert in the area of pharmacology and toxicology. And he said he was basically tasked uh, in this case with uh, deciding whether any substances in Yosef Pushka's system uh, could have had a bearing on him making admissions to the murder. Now, the witness went through the medical files uh, relating to Mr Pushka. And that was when he was a patient in St. James's Hospital. He was admitted to hospital uh, on the 13th of January last year. And that was the day after um, Ashley Murphy was killed. And um, he presented to hospital with apparent stab wounds. Um, he then had keyhole surgery uh, that day. And Professor Ryan, uh, basically, in his evidence yesterday, said that the only drug of relevance that he sa- found in in Mr Pushka's system um was a pain medication, he said, called oxycodone. And he said that would have been the only drug that would have been left in his system uh, when, on the evening of January 14th, and that is when he made those admissions to Gardi. And he concluded yesterday that there was no evidence to suggest whatsoever. He said to support any suggestion uh, that the defendant's admission was related to the effects of this drug or indeed any other drug. Mm, So a lot of the evidence last week was in relation to that admission. What exactly did they hear, Deborah? So last week, well, I suppose to begin, Yosef Pushka would have been admitted to hospital on um, the afternoon, early afternoon on January 13th. Um, And at that point when he was admitted to hospital with those apparent stab wounds, uh, he was brought to St. James's Hospital and Two went into that hospital investigating this apparent uh, stabbing in Blanchardstown in Dublin, to which Mr. Pushka had given an account to Gardaí when they went to his father's home in Crumlin before he was taken to hospital. But while he was in hospital, while these two officers uh, went to speak to him, they effectively told the trial they believed that there was holes in his account in relation to this uh, stabbing in Blanchardstown, and at that point they said that they also noticed um, a number of marks on the defendant's face, on his forehead in particular, on his, his head and on his hands. And it was because of that that they went to their superior um, and they said, you know, they, they weren't happy with the version of events he had given them in relation to this apparent stabbing. Um, and their superior, having looked at pictures that one of the officers took of Yosef uh, Pushka in hospital, um, and was aware from news reports um, of the murder investigation, Ashley Murphy's murder investigation. Well, he effectively contacted uh, Guardian Tullamore, and two officers from Tullamore were then sent to Saint James's Hospital. And it was in their second interview with Josef Pushka on the evening of uh, January fourteenth last year, and um, that Mr. Pushka, uh, they were they well they went there and they were told they told Mr. Pushka that that uh, a search warrant had been granted to allow. Uh, Gardaí to to seize his property. And at that point, Joseph Pushka asked him, was he a person of interest in the case or was he a suspect? Mm. And he was told, or sorry, he asked rather, was he a suspect? And he was told that he was a person of interest. Um, At that point, speaking through his interpreter, he said that he wanted to make an official statement. And it was in that official statement that he told a detective sergeant, uh, Brian Jennings, he said, "Um, I did it, I murdered, I am the murderer. Um, And we heard that in the evidence last week. We heard that Mr Pushka said that he was very sorry. He said that this wasn't something he did intentionally, and he told Gardaí that he was he was making this admission because he was he was concerned at that point um, for the welfare of his family. And as soon as he made that confession, he was immediately cautioned by officers. But he continued uh, to speak after that point. And it was only when Sergeant Jennings left the room um, to get a solicitor for Mr Pushka that another guard um Detective Garda, Fergus Hogan, I believe, and he said unprompted that uh, the accused started to speak further and he made, in speaking to that Garda, he told him that he had um, cut uh, Ms Murphy's neck and he gave further detail uh, which the prosecution said uh, was highly relevant. So it was in relation to those admissions that of course yesterday we heard this evidence from this medical expert who, who effectively said that no drugs in Mr Pushka's system at, at that time would have had any bearing on him making this confession.
3: Okay. Okay. So Deborah, they they heard about, the jury heard about his arrest in January of 2022. They also heard about DNA evidence as well. What what did they hear there?
1: Yeah, in relation to DNA evidence, we heard from um, a number of experts and they are from Forensic Science Ireland last week. And one of those uh, was John Holt He's now retired, but um, he worked, I think, in the area of forensic science for around uh, 31 years. And in his evidence, he said he concluded that there was, um, a, I think it was a one in a billion chance uh, that DNA uh, that was found on a bicycle, that that could have belonged uh, to anyone else uh, but Mr Pushka. And that, of course, the that bicycle the jury has heard uh, was found uh, close to where Ashley Murphy's body was found in the ditch um, along a stretch of the Grand Canal. And we heard further DNA evidence as well in relation to um, DNA that was found under the fingernails of um, Ms Murphy. And those scrapings were taken from the school teacher's fingernails and they were analysed. And I think the the evidence that was given, it was a one in 14,000 chance that the DNA found under her fingernails could have belonged to anyone else but the accused.
2: Mm. OK. Yeah. Um, so as you say, two prosecution witnesses still to go. Then after that, we'll see what way it goes. Obviously, it is something that requires a lot of diligent work on the guardians' part, but also on the part of court reporters like yourself. So we do really appreciate mm. uh, the work that you're doing and we very much appreciate you coming in to tell us about it uh, on the podcast today. Deborah. thanks very much. Thanks, Jeff Welcome back to the group chat. Um, there is obviously a lot of developing news today, the day that we're recording this Wednesday, about uh, the possibility of people getting out of Gaza. But we want to talk more about it under the bigger issue, which arises in what's been going on in the Middle East. And Richard, now you've been paying very close attention to this. Um, the, Tonstia, the Taoiseach or the teacher rather, excuse me, Leo Varadkar, has been talking about the idea of Ireland funding uh, some work at the International Criminal Court to investigate the prospect of there being war crimes committed by either Israel mm-hmm. or, or Hamas uh, in Gaza. Um, which kind of brings the whole question for people who are familiar with necessarily of of what are war crimes or how are they dictated or governed?
3: Well, people might be surprised to start off with that there are rules for wars and how they are conducted. It all goes back to the Second World War and the aftermath of that. People obviously saw the atrocities which were committed in the course of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. After that, there was a, a vow that never would this happen again. There was things which people would have heard of called the Geneva Conventions. Effectively prevent those atrocities Um, there's a a few key principles around this basically about differentiating between combatants and civilians that's Mm -hmm. something you'll have heard a lot about it allows countries to defend themselves but in terms of how much force they can use, proportionality has to be part of it as well. There can't be any scorched earth demolition of a vanquished enemy, for example. Um, So there's a couple of different institutions and uh, protocols which govern all of this, um, like the International Criminal Court, which is signed up to by the Rome Statute. But at the heart of this, there are major grounds which have basically been established and accepted by the Western world and by most countries in the world Mm. as to what they can and can't do in war basically military actions they have to be necessary uh, distinguishing as i say between civilians and military targets mm. proportionate response uh, you can't as much as possible have any incidental harm to Surrounding civilians. That's something we'll come back to as well, because I think that's something which is quite pertinent. And as well as that, there can't be any collective punishment. That's a phrase you'll have heard a lot of in w- recent weeks in terms of what Israel has done in Gaza. You can't punish the greater population, whether that's, you know, a country or a region for the actions of a group or a militia or a private company, for example.
0: And of course, anyone listening to the podcast will say, well, that's exactly what we've been seeing unfolding over the last couple of weeks is this you know, collective punishment. And even when we talk about the differences between identifying civilian and military targets, obviously we've seen in, in the last couple of days that there hasn't been much uh, effort really in terms of making that differentiation.
3: Yeah, I think this is the biggest thing and there has already been international, um, effectively international humanitarian law. That's the branch of law which mm. governs all of this. There has been investigations ongoing into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for years. So whatever happens out of this in terms of investigations for what's happening now in Gaza, the wheels of justice are going to be super, super slow. You're only going to be adding extra sheets to the top of a pile that's already pretty mountainous. Exactly, yeah. And nothing ever happens quickly. So like, for example, people have seen things, you know, the punishment of international crimes in places like Srebrenica, all these things happen yeah. decades later after mm-hmm. they all happened. So the question of anybody appearing in court in The Hague, for example, mm-hmm. for things happening in Gaza or for the Hamas attacks on Israel, very, very right. low possibility right. that This
2: would have already been on the radar because people might have remembered that in the aftermath of the war in Ukraine last year that there was some discussion, indeed an arrest warrant issued for Vladimir Putin. But like the prospect of that coming to trial or actually being heard in The Hague anytime. Imminently, it's just not going to happen at all. But it
0: does. Why why is that? Why does it take, you know, why is there no sort of it's uh, like it's such a good like I mean I don't know the answer I'm, I'm well, just let's trash it out I don't know the answer I'm just saying yeah, well, well I can tell you I can it?
3: tell you there's there's it's very hard to gather evidence to mm-hmm. actually convict anybody of war crimes right okay. because the people by because nature The landscape
0: of it, is obviously a dangerous landscape you're not going to send investigators into an open war zone to you know
3: Well there's that but also if in, in, in terms of if you're doing something afterwards the people who will control the evidence are often the people you were meant to be investigating Arbitrated. so for example okay. if you looked into things like what happened in Rwanda or what happened in you know East Timor there's been an investigation as well, it's very hard to compel governments who are being investigated to hand over records. And that's how prosecutions in these instances often fall apart. Mm. Particularly, actually, and we'll get to this point as well, Israel is not a member. It's not signed up to the International Criminal Court. It believes that there would be bias if there was to be any International Criminal Court charges brought against Israel it sees a lot of the countries in the world which have signed up to the ICC as hostile to its interests. Mm. I'm reminded actually just when you said
2: that all this emerged after World War II that of course World War II largely ended with nuclear bombs being dropped on two cities and a bittering everyone including all the civilians that were there and th- that came to mind because wasn't there a piece in the New York Times in the last couple of days a kind of a backgrounder about the US's relationship with Israel and all of this and Benjamin Netanyahu reportedly has taken that sort of a view that he's taken the, asp- the yeah. aspect of of well, if it means having to to level a place so as to exterminate our enemy, that's something he thinks he's prepared to do. Which obviously, if they were subject to the ICC, would be a war crime.
3: Yeah, and it's a compelling argument for him to make to backers. And even if there's a sense of any ebbing support for Israel in the United States, it's a very compelling argument to make to Americans to say, well, you guys dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki Mm -hmm. in World War II. You guys didn't have a ceasefire after 9-11. You guys didn't call for a ceasefire after Pearl Harbor. So it backs up the support for Israel and it's very hard to see anything happening whether it's an international tribunal for a war crime or a crime against humanity um, whether or not that may be perpetrated setting one up in the first place is very very difficult when you have the United States backing Israel and for the most part most of Europe backing Israel as well so that's a big big concern Mm -hmm. but in terms of what we've actually seen the the term war crimes and crimes against humanity and the term genocide as well has been thrown around a lot over recent weeks if you go back through what are the alleged war crimes which have happened since this all began on October 7th (laughs) well in terms of what Hamas did the United Nations already says very clear evidence of war crimes indiscriminately shooting civilians taking civilians as hostage is also a war crime that war crime is also exacerbated by the fact that they have very clearly Hamas tried to use the people that they have captured as bargaining tools mm-hmm. to have political yeah. prisoners our pa- Palestinian political prisoners released by Israel as well as that Hamas is also uh, fairly indiscriminately firing rockets from Gaza into uh, Israel that would also be seen as potentially a war crime as well but there
0: is a long effect, list The evidence is very obvious in those instances and also say, for example, with the, the music festival or going into the kibbutzes that the evidence lays there, the, the evidence, the aftermath lays bare. So the evidence is very much mm, visible there.
3: Completely. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a point of view which some people will take is like, well, is it difficult to prosecute anybody from Hamas seeing as Hamas isn't a country? But it is, in, in, in a sense, an administration in terms of Gaza. It is yeah. the ruling administration yeah. in Gaza. But it also, international humata- humanitarian law does not discriminate between countries, organisations, and anything else. Because the people who are prosecuted at the end of the day aren't countries. They aren't organisations. It is individuals. individuals. So it could be the leader of Hamas, it can be individual commanders within Hamas or in Israel as well.
0: Those who perpetrate the violence or or direct the violence or, you know. Exactly. And that's
3: why, for example, for the alleged crime of Russia deporting Ukrainian children to Russia, the person who was uh, pointed to in that case was Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. That's why the arrest warrant was issued for him as well as the Minister for Children in Russia as well. In terms of the accusations, the allegations against Israel. This is a very long list at this point in time. Now, these have all been pointed to and they have been, effectively the finger has been pointed to at Israel by a number of UN agencies in terms of collective punishment. The first thing which Israel announced in terms of what it was going to do in response to Hamas was to order a complete siege of the Gaza Strip. No electricity, no food, no fuel, everything closed. Uh, The Israeli Defence Minister said we are fighting human animals and we will act accordingly. The Red Cross said um, this is clearly not compatible with international humanitarian law.
0: Language is very problematic.
3: Yeah and the humanitarian law obviously it, it also uh, governs the allowing of humanitarian aid into Gaza as well so the fact that we've only seen a trickle of that that's something that will obviously be a focus
0: seeing mm. 10 trucks going over the border and like almost being people being delighted to see 10 trucks is the saddest thing ever Yeah, isn't it? we're it's we're like it's, just, it's like it's a drop in the ocean yeah we are making the point you, on, on
2: was it last week's podcast we're making the point that ordinarily like before all this kicked off that you need the equivalent of about 100 trucks per day entering mm-hmm. Gaza just to basically keep the lights to on keep it, to keep it standing still
0: before or it was yeah. under like relentless bombardment.
3: 100%,
2: Even yeah. if you
0: were to double that then you're saying 200 trucks and then you see 10... It was like eight or ten are getting in on average. Think, yeah, today now. I
3: think it was 20, 20 today on Wednesday as a result of that that new deal in terms of people moving out, more aid moving in. Mm. But again, that's completely. It's actually. I've, I was making the point during the week. It's actually pointless to report on the amount of aid that's getting in because it doesn't make any it's difference yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, it's complete waste. of because time. Because all
0: it looks like is as if it's sort of an olive branch, but in reality, it's actually just it's just great. Like no, it's just great. It
3: doesn't make any impact. So, like, I mean, it is it is one of the things which is one of the first items on news stories is like, well, ten trucks got in today and twenty trucks got in. It just creates a misleading picture for You're the public. Right. It just rise. does because mm. the aid isn't having an impact in the places where it's needed. Yeah. Uh, going back
2: to the, the point about trying to separate and ring fence off uh, innocent civilians from, from those who are the legitimate targets of war, if you like. Um, the particular incident at the refugee camp in the last 24, or 48 hours, mm-hmm. that's one a lot of people are pointing to.
3: Yeah, I think this is this is probably the stickiest point. It's the one where you're seeing Western nations now finally, I think, break their solidarity and their unity in terms of the response to Israel. You're even hearing the to Miha Martin saying that he was shocked and appalled by what happened at the Jabalia mm. refugee camp. So to go over the facts for this, people aren't aware. Uh, the Israeli Defence Forces admitted to bombing a refugee camp, the biggest in all of Gaza, because they said they were looking for a Hamas commander who they said they killed in this strike. He was the target of this airstrike. Six bombs were dropped on a very densely populated area. Dozens of people were killed. We don't have a final figure. But anybody who has seen the pictures on the news over the last couple of days Mm. will be in no doubt. Mm. A lot of women and children were killed in that. Now, in terms of international humanitarian law and war crimes, as I said, you have to differentiate between civilians and combatants. You also have to protect uh, any potential spillover. But there are war crimes if you are using people as a human shield. Mm-hmm. So using yeah. hostages as a human shield mm-hmm. or using civilians, building infrastructure, your Hamas positions. W- which in which is himself.
2: Israel's contention all along that Hamas continually uses the likes of hospitals or schools effectively as infrastructural shields, yeah. that it, its networks are based on those sites or underneath those sites and therefore they're, they're trying to use that
3: civilian infrastructure as something of a shield for itself. Completely. So there will be a big onus on Israel to produce evidence whenever it does anything in relation to Al-Shifa Hospital, Al-Quds Hospital, two hospitals they've pointed to as being used by Hamas and Jabalia, the refugee camp here as well. But because Hamas may use those positions and there is disputes over whether or not Mm. that is the case Mm. or its based nearby, that doesn't give a country carte blanche to attack to that position. Attack all these... There has to be a question. kill
0: one militant and then decide, oh, well, it was justified even though you've killed like, potentially, as you say, dozens of civilians and to say that that's why it's just, it's unacceptable. But it's like the point you're making, sorry, just about that. Like, I mean, when people come to a refugee camp, they feel like they may have reached a place of safety. Like, they have a reasonable expectation that it's a place of refuge or it's mm. a refugee camp. And like, you know, it's the same with the hospitals and we've talked about in the schools and everything, you know, over the weekend when I was working and looking at some of the footage coming in from some of the hospitals and where people are now being treated, even if you get better, you can't be discharged because you've got nowhere to go because your home has been blown up. So you've still got to. So, like, I mean, you know, we talk about the system being blocked up. Actually, people have nowhere else to go. So you can go into hospital, be treated, but you're still sort of, stuck there yeah. because where else are you going to It's go? actually
2: one thing that's been very striking to me because once you know when we work in newsrooms we see a lot of live steady cam footage coming, from, coming from areas in, yeah. like that and outside the hospital in Caneunis is one of those places that you'll continually see outside the Nasser Hospital mm. mm-hmm. and it's really striking how many people are just sitting there possibly because yeah. they're waiting for news of loved ones inside but also because they just have They've nowhere no else to, to go. go. They may They've have been no discharged but don't have anywhere else to go to, so that's just where they're sitting. Because and if they go
0: to a refugee camp now, they're not. There's no longer. Who's going to want to move on from the hospital? Like you know, they're not going to want to free up space in a hospital. You know, potentially refugee camp is your next option after hospital if your house is gone. Mm. And, and now after this, who would who would bring their children to to a refugee camp after all of this? Well,
3: this is the thing. Um, Jabalia has been targeted, and has another major refugee camp has been targeted repeatedly as well. There is going to be a huge focus, and I think it's going to be something which Israel is going to find very difficult in the court of international public opinion, rather than in terms of actual yeah. war crimes courts, um, to persuade but the world that it's done that proportional job. Does affect
0: them though? Do you think does it does it bother does it bother the likes of Netanyahu that the people you know think that he's making bad decisions? I don't think it. No, either. it, it no, it,
3: no, it the, doesn't. the only way it, the only way it does matter, and I think that this is something which is you're starting to see the sand shift a little, is mm. in terms of the West's support. For Israel, so the West in um, 2022, basically making a huge point around the fact that what was happening in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that there was indiscriminate bombing of civilians, that white phosphorus was being used by Russia. It's it's very, you know, it's a, um, it's a flammable, you know, explosive device can cause huge damage and death and destruction in built-up areas. So the West galvanised support around the world to put in sanctions against Russia for what it saw, saw as clear breaches yes. of international humanitarian right. law and attacks on civilians. If this is happening and the world sees this as happening in Israel versus the people of Gaza and that's how people are seeing the conflict mm-hmm. now rather than Israel versus Hamas. Yeah.
0: yeah.
3: If they don't replicate the same sanction there's a question there for the West.
0: Then why not? Western, exactly, yeah. Western
3: standing around the world three quarters of the world looks yeah. at what's happening here and they're like well, where's our moral leadership coming from here? Where's the United States and why isn't it condemning what's happening in terms of attacks on civilians? Now you're hearing the same spokespeople from the US State Department who are last year saying it's a disgrace and horrendous. And it was horrendous what we saw Mm -hmm. in terms of attacks on Bakhmut, uh, in terms of attacks around Kyiv in eastern Ukraine as well. Now saying, this is a tragedy of war. This is what happens. Civilians are going to die. That's a very hard position to do. And it could see things shift in terms of the Western, the Western-led I think global order.
0: Well, we talk about the ceasefire because people listening to the podcast may have, you know, on their own social media, I've seen some people who are, you know, not news journalists, lots of people sharing this call for a ceasefire. And, you know, even in the first week when all this happened, talking to me and Martin about Ireland's contribution to conversations around de escalation and all that kind of thing. Like, realistically, how likely is a ceasefire, do you think, at this point in time?
2: A a ceasefire is absolutely not going to happen because, uh, as it stands, the United States doesn't back a ceasefire. And, of course, Israel itself has no intention of a ceasefire. And as long as the United States is in Israel's corner, there is no prospect of that. It might be worth explaining to people just by the by what what the rationale for that is. The view of Israel and of its American supporters is that you can't reliably call a ceasefire and expect it to be honoured by the other side, that mm. they see Hamas as primarily a terrorist organisation. You can't expect them Who to... don't act in abide good,
0: by rules. And, and, and you, you can't follow. expect them to
2: act in good faith. So if you mm. call any kind of humanitarian ceasefire simply just to allow aid in, a, a pause in hostilities, you can't trust Hamas to actually do that. And of course, moreover, there is the view that you would be, therefore be giving Hamas more time to prepare a counteroffensive or to enact uh, acts of terrorism or to retain all of that aid for itself. So, they just don't believe that Hamas is a good enough faith actor mm. to be trusted in that front. And that was a point that was made by quite a few American leaders to try and back up that position.
0: Did you see? I saw there was going to be Hosier speaking at a com- uh, concert this week. Did you see that clip? And he was talking about that idea of ceasefire. And he was just saying that, you know, he's like, I come from a country that, you know, was helped by the Americans to get to a point of peace. And he was like, you know, if America could do it once before for us, they can do it again. Mm. They can play their part and they can play their role in all of this.
3: Yeah. And it's interesting. I didn't think we'd, we'd get around to talking about it, but there might be a domestic political consideration on this. Or at least there might there might need to be mm. from Joe Biden's perspective, because Joe Biden if he wants to be the president again, he needs to win the youth vote. Yeah. and the youth vote in terms of American attitudes towards Palestine mm. has changed Massively. considerably Formously. but also um Arab Americans voted overwhelmingly, given things which Donald Trump said about Arab Americans and Muslims before they voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden, right? This time around, that support has completely collapsed mm-hmm. as a result mm-hmm. of Joe Biden's very hardline support stance for Israel. He has started to say things like, there needs to be a proportional response, need to get aid in, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I just think that's something which I think Joe Biden is going to need to keep an eye on because I think it's, it's a lot of a support at a time when he's already under huge political pressure and it's all ebbing away. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for
1: medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: I have to say, one of the more surprising push alerts I've had of recent times was one from the Irish Examiner in the last couple of days, uh, reporting on some details from an Oroctus committee. Which is apparently recommending that they're going to push the age for the state pension up to seventy-five. Mm. Stuff. And the reason why I'm so surprised at that is, be like, do we all remember like the the hellish battles and the flak
0: that the, the present government it. has taken? They haven't a
2: hope. Or even tried to push it back as far as sixty-eight, no. and she would saying no, it has to be sixty-five. It was genuinely an election issue. Last time they were in the and, and now they're like, oh, and no, sure let's all, apparently, there's all party sign off on this, seemingly, uh, at least in principle, within
3: that committee to throw it up to 75. All
0: party, including Sinn Féin Seemingly
3: so.
2: No way. So, mm.
0: so,
3: what would it actually mean if that is enacted? Is that you can't get state pension until 75? Effectively, so yeah,
2: or at least obviously, they'd be proposing it on a graduated basis. But that right now, where you get the pension at sixty six, they're like over time because well, you of know the, what?
0: At the rate we're going to have renting pensioners, we're going to they're going to everyone's going to be working anyway. It's like demented. Well, that's
2: probably the official logic, but it's probably it's, is, is, it's is demented. Is yeah. definitely the line but though. The, so the obvious thinking is that demographics are changing, society is getting older, and that if you were to keep it at the age that it currently is with the ages that people now live to, Mm. the ratio of people who are still of working age versus the people who are in retirement and need the support of the state would basically be too imbalanced. And that in order to make sure that you've got the appropriate number of working people (sighs) per retiree... That you'd need to have people working up until their 70s.
0: Well, here's the thing, right? And we talked about this the last time we had this conversation, we said the exact same thing. The difference here is, right, if you are in a job that requires physical labor, it does take its toll on your body, the wear and tear. I remember saying to my mom, is in her 60s, she went, I'm saying this, and I was chatting to her best friend a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about how ah, 60 is the new 40 and everyone's really vibrant at 60 now. Mm. And she was like, Yeah, look, 60 is the new 40, but she's like, I wish someone had told my body that, you know, and we kind of <laughs> laughed about it, you know? And like, she, yeah. but she was like, I do feel youthful and you do feel mm, vibrant. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, but. But the truth is, like, if you're in a job that requires, you know, physical, like, mm. you know, heavy duty labor, like, you know what I mean? The idea of your body still, like, even the fittest and heaviest and heartiest, like, my granddad is in his—he'll be 91 next year. He goes to aerobics two mornings a week, but the knees are still bad. Like, do you know what I mean? He's not going to be. You're we got to mention the
3: aerobics. I say once every two months. I in the podcast. It. It's I, great. I, it's I great kind of, to see. I'm
0: so proud of it. I wish I was going to aerobics it. two mornings a week. But do you know what I'm saying? Like your yeah. body, like if you're in a phys- so if you're like, in a job that's maybe not as physically demanding, it's a different thing, isn't it? Really? Yeah, and I think it's it's. It's a
3: hard thing for whatever political party, even cross-party, to sell to people. Because even if people are able to work in certain roles past the age of 70, Mm. people deserve the choice. People have worked their way from finishing school, finishing college. They've paid their PRSI. They've paid into their pension pots. Mm. And then to be told, "Eh, we're shifting that goalpost several years down the road away from you. Mm. Let people enjoy life. Life is not all about... Working and serving the economy but and what, how much money but you're but worth if, to the exchequer. I suppose if you work in professional classes
2: that were in something like intellectual, where like it's not a physically laborious job, you have the the ability right now to continue working into your seventies. Anyway. If your
0: mind stays sharp, though, as well, you know what I mean. Because yeah. obviously you have to. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, do you know, you'd like to say like sitting here at 35 years of age, I'd love to say that I'd still be, you know, out there covering the weather <laughs> yeah. stories and being on the front line <laughs> of journalism at 75 But Like, you don't know. I mean, like, I suppose a lot of it depends on I suppose you know wear and tear and life and how life gets to you and you know what I mean but I think mm-hmm. at the moment you know 65 as you said Richard is kind of it's a nice benchmark for people in a sense that you can still plan for if you do live to eight into your 80s as people you know generally are doing you know yeah. living long and healthy lives it means you get a good 20 years of actually kind of you know enjoying your retirement and potentially enjoying your family and yeah. all that but kind of it,
2: thing. But but it, it, it is, is that the, the, the problem, so to speak, that if you spend well, 45 well, I mean, years working and then you're, is, you're retired yeah. for 20 afterwards, that you don't earn enough in the 45 to make provisions for so the
0: So you think that, like, well, they think that maybe, you know, good 10 years and then you're gone. You get 10, <laughs> you get 10 years of a run out and then you're out, you're out the gap. Well,
3: it just feels like a very cold calculus. Very
0: cold. It is very As well, cold. As, well as that,
3: like, I mean, it, 75 would be well... Well, an outlier in terms of what the current yeah, top retirement yeah. ages are around the world. 67 years of age. Iceland, I- Israel and Norway. Um, is it still 62 in France? After I'm, all I, I haven't got the full list okay, here. I'm just looking
2: at I'm the really highest. Sure that, we're like,
3: sti- Emmanuel Macron inherited it at 60. Yeah. And, uh, there was like, there was holy war when he tried to move it to 62. But even countries which have a higher life expectancy, like Japan, for example, like their their retirement age is 64. <laughs> Like, again, there's a value placed on the elders in society that they aren't just seen as, oh, look at them, they're going to be sucking from the state, Mm. from their pension. Like, this is is ridiculous stuff. I just find that this is something which obviously hasn't, like, you got the push alert there. It was in the examiner or whatever. It's not entered the no, mainstream of political policy. discussion yeah, because no. it's not going to. Because <laughs> that's electorally yeah. the dumbest thing you could possibly well, put out why, there. Well, I think it, it's interesting because it's clearly been made blind to political
2: consequences. They're just purely thinking about the theory or the economics behind it, which kind of makes it fascinating in its own right. But it will be interesting to see when it is published, A, is there some kind of minority report from the Sinn Féin TDs who were partly elected last time around on the back of keeping the pension age at 65? And B, what kind of timeframe would they be talking about mm. when they're thinking about it? Like, would it mean that people... Us or people in the labour market shortly after us, would we be expected to work into our 70s? I think that's worth keeping an eye out on. Well,
0: it is. But also, I know the last time we talked about it as well, there are some people who get 65 and don't want to retire and they're kind of forced out yeah. of their jobs. And I do find that a little bit sad yeah. as well because I think sometimes there are people who, you know, are quite hale and hearty and vibrant mm-hmm. and want to kind of, and they just want to maybe keep on a three day week or they want to keep going. or And also, I would say as well, like as you said, Richard, about valuing your elders, like there are definitely older people uh, within the workforce that, you know, younger people can learn a lot from. And we saw that even, I think, during the pandemic, a lot of the older. There were people who came back into the workforce. Some Mm. people came out of retirement to help out on the front line and things like that. There was a bit of bit of a comeback at there's,
3: that time. There certainly was but also yeah. I mean it just does speak about how we do look at elders in society and I actually saw a headline today um, which went and it was another push notification saying elderly patients taking up hospital beds to be moved to next available nursing home to ease winter trolley crisis. Even the phrase elderly patients taking up hospital beds as if they're there Quite on a, on a holiday like bed. do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're there to be treated. Mm. Like this way that we speak about older people in society as if there's some sort of inconvenience for the rest of the population is quite cold and probably not reflective of a kind society Mm. I
2: agree Um, did you two young whippersnappers both enjoy your Sunday morning extra hour in bed by the way
0: um, uh, I was working at the weekend, and so I think you were an hour more refreshed than coming in for your work on uh, Sunday. Yeah, you, no, <laughs> I mean, honey, I always come in refreshed. <laughs> um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I did. I did. I I think I was up anyway. I think I, my body doesn't realize. Do okay. you know what I mean? So you wake up, but then of, well, you see
2: the clock and you don't go, ah, you know, I can eat another half hour. Out no, of this. Then I'm
0: like, get the coffee on, let's get the coffee on. And All right. I, mean, I, enjoy, I probably did more sitting around drinking coffee for an hour, admittedly. Well, there the nice. are worse ways to spend your Not time. Not to come in here, uh, it's kind
2: of like there's this debate, like, basically, twice a year now as to whether we should ever just give. Up with this, and it never seems to come to fruition because everyone seems to practice the debate But why the do we hour. want
0: to give up on it now? Tell me, why? What, what's the well, the thing is, well, if we were do you we want to give up on it, what yeah, do you, well, I don't even know I why, think the but question I'm just done with it. Which just one, just one do you keep stay it consistent?
2: On?
3: I mean, I whatever I would, makes it brighter,
2: I would prefer consistent be nicer. but see brighter when that's the thing in winter, but brighter in mornings or in evenings. That's ah, the mornings, yeah. So you want brighter mornings, I would like brighter mornings, yeah, but you
3: but you would dark mornings are the worst and most depressing thing, but you also still want brighter evenings in summer. I don't care So really. that's the status quo then. I'm just looking for whatever. The I'm just looking for good time. It's the summer is
0: bright enough. You could, you could lose an hour of brightness in the summer. You ah yeah, we're, wasting, it we're
3: wasting the sun at 10 o'clock in the evening. But you must, like, sometimes you
0: know. still <laughs> have it at 11 and I'm kind of going, it's 11. Like wasting you, time, you yeah. know, as you're going to bed and you're like, hang on a second, but it's but still you, bright you know, that's out, That's the reason know?
2: why it was brought in in the first place. It was a wartime measure because basically when they, during the Great War, they were like, we need to eke out some more time out of natural sunlight here so that yeah. we'll click the... Throw the clocks back, and that's where it came from. Mm. I find
0: the dark evenings kind of annoying, though. I have to say, I just feel like you're driving home, and it's like you're going in, and it's dark, and you're coming out, and it's dark. Mm. It's a bit, of, it's a bit much. My cousin lives in Sweden, though, and it gets dark there at like two o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. the and then stays
2: dark for like six months.
0: I remember going to visit. <laughs> I'm going totally off beat here. <laughs> I remember going to visit him the first time to Sweden when he first moved over there, and she are like glass of wine about two o'clock in the afternoon because we were on our yeah. holidays and you're like, Do you know what? It's dark now anyway, so it yeah. was grand. You know it's know two mean. o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, kind your, of. Yeah, yeah,
2: which is a bit much. I genuinely like, like, yeah. you know, don't know how societies like that do it. Like, mm-hmm. are there are, there, are there not a, a significant number of people in those societies who are seasonally affected and who are. Like,
0: I, was, I totally believe in that, that seasonal affective disorder thing. I think it's totally. I don't know if I have it, but I do think, I do find it just quite hard when it's so dark and even when you're going mm-hmm. home because you, you forget how productive you can be actually in the brighter evenings in the summer. I do feel like you just kind of go home and cook dinner and you don't get much done. I'm really, in the, in the winter, <laughs> this is just me declaring. I just think in the last couple of days since it's gotten a bit darker, I'm because darkening
2: like, advocates hibernation. That's basically no, what's going no. On but now.
0: I, but so you're saying if we didn't change the clocks? Then what would be? See, I, I,
2: I don't like clocks changing. but vested interest. I have two, two children, small children. Yeah, and Basically, it's impossible children. to try and sync them up. So you're either trying to send them to bed an hour earlier, or to try and keep them up an hour later, so that they don't wake up at like super stupid o'clock the following morning, which is really tricky. And you spend days chasing your tail trying to eke them back. But the problem is that you don't know where to settle. Like, Do you want to settle in wintertime and have the slightly brighter mornings, but then lose the brightness of the evenings in summertime? Or do you stay in summertime, but then knowingly result in it being dark until like 10 or half 10 in the morning at the peak of winter? And if we could only mm-hmm. just decide which one we wanted, then we could just stick with it. And could we just split the difference and just move half an hour one way no. and stay there? Okay. No,
0: Chambers we can't, no, you, can't okay. you can't do it by half
3: hours <laughs> there too are complicated. Some time zones that are half hours yeah I know but like I just don't see them shifting it. I, I actually don't see them shifting this at all because I just think it's too much work do you see, we do you see a, an actual political push by anybody to get this change like I just don't see something. I do remember there
2: being a bill on the door about 10 years ago and Alan Shatter was the minister for time at the time as and he said listen if you want brighter mornings just get up earlier like the Swedes do just just adjust your living circumstances that you see more of the brightness that was his answer at the time right. um, but I just I wanted done with it because I just can't be dealing with
0: the well, kids with again. the kids but like what time were they up at three
2: uh, well we tried to keep them up really late the night before with varying success because then they're overtired going to bed and then they can be a bit cranky and then just trying to wind them down is tricky but um, I think we managed it but I just don't want the what were they for them. Halloween Gav uh, Woody and Jesse, very cute Yeah, very cute it, it, it was adorable did you dress up uh, I did not dress up. Did you no. trick or treat? Uh, no. no, I'm, I'm a 37 year old man. No, I'm, but did I your did girl house, no Did the
0: girlies trick or treat? Uh,
2: no, they didn't. They went. To, they had a sleepover in their grinding grandad's. Oh, that's huge. That? That's very Uh sweet. Which is much better than trick or treating because the, yeah. the sweets are infinite and they're brought to you by people you know. Oh, uh, uh, okay. just going up to <laughs> the doors. Um, Richard, the football World Cup, people will remember, it barely seems like it's oh. over. Uh, Lionel Messi has only just won the Ballon d'Or for his achievements playing football in the Middle East. More football in the Middle East. Yeah, in a country that's packing them in at its Premier League. Tell us about it.
3: Uh, Saudi Arabia, little surprise, we've been saying that this was going to happen for a long time, uh, ever since Qatar got the last World Cup that Saudi Arabia would want a World Cup of its own as uh, another uh, instrument of sports washing to burnish its reputation as a world leader in the field of sport and prevent people looking at pesky things like human rights abuses and uh, proxy wars around the world. So congratulations. That's another great success facilitated by the good people at FIFA uh, for uh, Mohammed bin Salman's uh, grim agenda mm. uh, and grim human rights abuses. So uh, this was such a fate, accompli complete that um, even the way FIFA awards World Cups has gone. Basically, initially it was designed to make sure there was the, the love was spread yeah. in terms of where you host World Cups. So for a while it was rotated around continents, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Now the, the hosting of twenty thirty four World Cup was put to such a <sighs> Such a non-interested uh, two continents in Oceania and 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 Asia, and they've all they've done their bit. They've done their bit. Uh, Oceania doesn't really ha- is only going to put Australia forward for a bid. Really, yeah, it dropped out. There was only one standing bid. That was Saudi Arabia mm. by default. Yeah, Saudi Arabia. So are we now at the point then where previously there would be allegations of
2: rampant corruption and uh, bribery in the World Cup bidding process now that you just kind of rig the process that there's only one interested party and you just bypass the whole idea of voting at all?
3: Well this is one of the criticisms which has been levelled at this. So former senior people at FIFA who have since left football's governing body have said that this is actually a sign that this is a return to the bad old days that there is underhand deals being done mm. to get other bids to drop out to allow Saudi Arabia a clean run of things and people who saw the 2030 World Cup going to a whole cabal of countries again um, Oh yeah that's what it's in Spain Portugal, Morocco um, as well as Paraguay Paraguay
2: and Uruguay, Uruguay and Argentina
3: yeah yeah So that's such an unwieldy World Cup that it would seem like it would be a good idea just to hold it in one country and that one country would be Saudi Arabia. Mm. My big problem, well, not my big problem with this because I've, you know, we've talked about Qatar. On a personal level, it's sad because... um, As a football fan. As a football fan, it's increasingly difficult. Going to a World Cup, which is hosted in one country or two countries, is difficult enough as it was. Like for when Ireland fans went over to Italia 90 or to USA in 94, Mm. Korea and Japan in 2002. Credit union loans were taken out. Piggy banks were smashed. Yeah. <laughs> people sold and remortgaged houses
0: and all that sort of stuff. It was the best, These things are the best crack. That people make such an effort to go. So far and away from
3: Ireland actually qualifying for World Cup, the idea of any of us actually on our tods are you know collectively going for pleasure to go see the greatest tournament in world sport is now financially out of reach mm. and it 's also morally out of reach. so if you wanted to go and see the World Cup, which is spread across two continents, that one with you know Spain, Portugal, Morocco, and Uruguay, Paraguay, and argentina that 's unwieldy as hell mm. and then if you don 't want to go to places which have human rights abuses and are using it to burst to burnish their own image, Im- images. You don't want to go to Saudi Arabia in twenty thirty four. Don't so can't go to the twenty thirty World Cup. Can't go to the twenty thirty four World Cup. When will I ever get to go to see the World Cup? We better qualify for USA, Canada, Mexico in twenty twenty six. But that's that's probably the last. Um, that's probably the last manageable sort of mm. one single area World yeah. Cup and you're going to see, continent. which yeah. isn't in a place which is you know human rights abusing or whatever like that. Because it just seems like you've seen it with other tournaments. You you the European Championships has gone to multi city, multi mm. country tournaments. It's a sad way for football to deteriorate once again, really.
0: So as I promised you, I did complete the Britney Spears book. I did forget to do it until yesterday. <laughs> when, I still got it done. Well, you both text texted the group and you were like, how are you getting on with the Britney book? And I was like, well, fantastic. I only I asked even because I had it.
2: actually used a precious Audible credit to buy it. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to know how far you were in. Well, you were going to do it. I didn't realize.
0: Well, because what is no. it for it to be a
2: discussion about the book rather than you telling us what's oh,
0: Have it? you had a listen? No. Oh, okay. Fine. Um, <laughs> I'll give it about half an hour. In. Actually, it's only five and a half hours on Audible. Would highly recommend quick it. Listen, to a yeah. friend. Quick listen, yeah. It's a quick listen. So, yeah, I just I was doing a bit of DIY. I wasn't doing DIY. I was going around to DIY shops and not doing the DIY yesterday. but I had Read it by on. Michelle Williams, isn't it? Read by Michelle yeah, Williams. It does kind of a southern drawl, kind of does a bit of an accent. Okay. Um, so, it's actually quite a nice listen, you know, because almost thinking about Audible but it does depend what the read is like. And it was quite good. Um, God, I have so many thoughts. I mean, first of all, I would say that it's very clear that she is speaking her truth, but I wouldn't say it's the whole truth. I'd say there's a lot more that she probably could have said, but for probably varying degrees and different reasons, she probably isn't getting into like some things like she'll talk about in quite a, a bit of detail but then you you almost feel like there's more to it that's not getting the like the full okay. picture so a couple of things that kind of stood out well first of all she was talking about some of her family background which was really interesting actually and she was saying that uh, she had a grandmother called Jean Spears and that's where her middle name came from Brittany Jean Spears who had a very like very difficult life and you know had struggled a lot with her mental health and stuff and you know it had a really kind of difficult life and I think that kind of led to her father having kind of a difficult upbringing mm. and you know like there's a lot of background within the family that kind of you know she la- lays out from the beginning about the challenges there and stuff and mm. her parents marriage was quite challenging. The bit about
2: the glamorous uh, English grandmother yeah. who didn't realise the life that she was coming to when she met an American soldier in the war and then moved to America yeah. and thought that it would be like London. Yeah, that, that, that was about the end of where I got to but I actually Oh quite, did you get there? About, I got about that far huh. I actually found that quite like I didn't know she had a
0: glamorous British grandmother. No granny, but, but imagine just
2: like how, how much of a like sea change that must be for you if like you are a London socialite
0: in the 1940s yeah. and you meet like a handsome young glamorous American GI and, and then he wouldn't let her go to home to visit her because th- he was afraid that she wouldn't come back or something mm. so she just basically said her granny was kind of held hostage sort of in America for her whole life and sort of hated it but anyway um, some of the things that came up right just a couple of, I don't want to sp- I, how much do I say without spoiling it for it's people? out everywhere if you, want, if you don't now, want this book
3: to be spoiled, turn off
0: the podcast. Turn off the podcast now, yeah. <laughs> now. everyone. Bye, See you next week. <laughs> well, so, okay, for example, the relationship with Justin Timberlake, I have so many thoughts on that. To be honest with you, like I think Justin Timberlake actually treated her kind of appallingly in the end. Um, You know, it really looked like, from the outside, you know, especially when he released Crime Me River and all that kind of stuff, it looked like she had...
3: I'm sorry, for people who don't <laughs> understand, So, what's the backstory there?
0: Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake met when they were basically kids in the Mickey Mouse Club and they had hit it off. They had a relationship. They were like the it couple of the late 90s, early noughties. Um, he was in, in Sync, a boy band. She was obviously that one of the hottest solo artists at the time. And they were trying to hold down a relationship, obviously long distance because he was touring with the band and she was doing her own work. And then they would come back together and they would live together when they were back together for two weeks, two months at a time. They had It was the love of her life, I would argue, even having listened to the whole book. Um. She was aware that he was probably cheating on her, that, you know, she cited an example of a time when he was caught in a car with someone from All Saints and stuff like that. But Mm. she said that she was happy to turn a blind eye to all of that because she kind of loved him so much. She said she admitted she was like, I was so foolish. I was so in love with him. I, you know, sort of left all this stuff go on and it was whatever. And then she did say, all right, that she kissed someone one time. All right. So, you know, she reckons that he was hooking up with loads of people and all this kind of thing. But she said she kissed Wade Robson. Do Wade Robson, the choreographer. Okay, I know the name. So he would have been one of the uh, Michael Jackson's accusers yeah, at the time. Okay. Yeah, exactly. But he would be one of the choreographers that worked on like a lot of, at that time he was one of the key choreographers kind of those 90s, early 90s. And mm. it, they break up and it, Justin Timberlake breaks up with Britney Spears and then he goes on to produce his first solo, solo album and has the song Cry Me a River on that and people who are old enough to remember will know that yeah. he had a Britney Spears lookalike in the video, which basically insinuated that Britney had cheated. I don't on, at all. Do you know oh my God, Gavin. This is you like, didn't know the song was supposed to be inspired by her, so We haven't got enough time to get into the weeds of this, but I'm telling you, we, this is like this was a thing at the time. Do you okay. remember? Yeah
3: it was, yeah. It's it was, been well established. It's actually why Justin Timberlake's reputation there's a lot of issues with with Justin Timberlake, yes. which has come to light in recent years. Yes. People reevaluating things which happened in, in the mid yeah. and early two thousands, particularly around Janet Jackson and the Super Bowl, how he spoke about Britney Spears in public um, how that breakup was handled. It was desperate. All of that sort of stuff. Talking about, you know, her virginity and whatnot. <laughs> all of that sort of stuff. People have re-evaluated how they looked at Justin Timberlake. And I would say his reputation is probably as low as it's ever been. But th- I think yeah. the takeaway people have taken from the book is that she's held back a little bit in terms of criticising Came over this that she hasn't really to the degree of of lifting the lid and going in in terms of what her actual feelings were around a lot of these things. But she's held a lot of that back. Trying to be the bigger person,
0: I would. um, I don't know if she. I think it's more that I actually think she still holds a bit of like affection towards him and certainly his family. I would say because she gives an example of a time when her granny died and like Justin Timberlake's mother lent them the money to fly back home for the funeral and stuff. So she seems to have a very like a lot of respect for Justin Timberlake's parents and family and that kind of thing. So I think a lot of what the hold back there is that she potentially has a lot of time for them, Mm. but she. Did talk about the fact that she had an abortion as well while they were in a relationship, that the abortion took place um, at home, and that only Justin and her assistant Felicia, people who would have been fans of Britney Spears over the years would have heard of Felicia, was aware of that. She talks about um, what I want to say about sorry, the Crimea River thing, right? This is the point that came up in the book, and it was really interesting actually. She said at the time when Crimea River was released was a time when hip hop music, male hip hop music, was really centred around anger towards women and like resentment towards women. Mm. And she cited examples of like Eminem's relationship with his yeah. ex, Kim. Because yeah, yeah. like people will remember, you know, he hated this yeah, person, Kim. And, so you know, grim, yeah. we all remember that. And I suppose at the time, maybe it wasn't, it was just when she mentioned in the book and she said like that that was that sort of theme within the music was really popular at that time. And she felt like she was really confronted by that. And basically that it, it had a mass impact that everywhere she went, she was being booed and, and was given a really hard time. Um, she also goes into details about the relationship with Kevin Federline. Again, she was very, she was Kevin pretty. I
3: haven't heard her in a long time. Yeah. Like but what, that, what's your takeaway from the book though? Like, right? Rather than
0: what that's. The takeaway is that um, I think that she's had a very difficult life. I think that basically Britney Spears is saying that. Look, like I had my ups and downs. I found things difficult, and I, you know, I, I went a bit astray. But also, I funded everyone's life around me. I worked really hard, and I was a good girl. And I actually do think that Britney Spears, in a lot of ways, there's something childlike about her. I think that she mm. sort of is trapped in that. She became famous when she was 15, 16. Mm. And I think she's trapped in a little bit we're of that. Worth a listen, all the same. Oh, definitely. I would give it a listen. It's five and a half hours, and like if you've listened to Britney music and you were a fan over the years, I think you'll enjoy it.
2: You're flying through. It. There we go. First book club <laughs> recommendation from the group chat. Um, Others oh, oh, might be forthcoming because Richard, you're going to be on for the next two weeks, so we're going to. Have to do a do. Thank God, God. the book club. Yep. Just a few later later, yeah. can't wait to see uh, what you do with the place while I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> right, no pressure, no pressure. Uh, Richard. Thank you. Enjoy your Zara. Thank you. Thanks to everybody involved in production today. We will see you again same time next week. Until then, cheerio.
3: Bye. Bye.